Hello, and welcome to the third program in our series, Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. In our previous two sessions on the tumbling T and the tumbling U of Calvin's tulip, I demonstrated that when Calvin's definitions of total human depravity and unconditional election are compared with the teachings of the Bible, Calvin's definitions are found to be significantly in error. In my book, Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist, I explained that as a young man, I was a full five-point Calvinist, accepting each of the points of Calvin's tulip. You may recall that each letter stands for a major doctrine of Calvinism. T for total human depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. I consider these points to be the undergirding foundation for understanding theology. You may remember from our first session that I likened one's belief to a, a dress suit. I called Calvin's system my suit of theology. At the time, I believed there were only two brands of suits to choose from, either Calvinism or Arminianism. Because I believe the Bible clearly teaches that a genuine believer is eternally secure and cannot lose his or her salvation, I rejected Arminianism and concluded that I must be a Calvinist. You see, Calvinism's standard size theological suit was constructed according to Calvin's own definitions for the five doctrines. Now, when I tried on this suit, however, I found that it didn't quite fit me, for it did not agree with what I believed to be true about God's person and his attributes. Now, I assume the problem was with me, and I simply needed to examine Calvin's five points carefully in the light of the Bible. After seriously considering and comparing Calvin's view with Scripture, I came to the conclusion that I couldn't agree with his definitions for all five points of TULIP. I discovered that my suit of theology did not fit the required standard size for me to be a Calvinist. I hope that you have gained understanding through our two earlier sessions. I also hope that you will grasp how the five points are interconnected to each other, and if one fails, the entire system collapses like a row of dominoes. When we replace Calvin's five-point definitions with those arrived at by comparing Scripture with Scripture, one becomes what I prefer to call a Biblicist. Now, at the beginning of this series, I mentioned how I initially altered my five-point theological suit of Calvinism to four points, when I, like many, could not accept the third point, the L of limited atonement. I had rejected limited atonement after relatively little study or investigation, for I simply believed, and still do, that the Bible supports the doctrine that Christ died for every human individual throughout history just as John 3.16 clearly states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever 
believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And over in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, the apostle wrote to believers saying, And he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now I knew that Calvin and his followers limited the extent of God's love for the world when he reasoned that God extends his love to the pre-chosen elect individuals only. As Calvin stated, and I quote, For as he, God, hates sin, he can only love those whom he justifies. In in other words, Calvin is saying that God only loves the pre-chosen elect because they're the only ones he planned to justify and make worthy of being loved by him. For me now, the words, For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him suggest no such limitation. In this third session of our series, we will consider the third point of Calvinism in greater depth by comparing the Calvinistic teaching on limited atonement with what the Bible relates on this important doctrine. As I began my study of atonement, I quickly realized the importance of this doctrine with respect to God sending his son to die on the cross. Now, both Calvinists and Biblicists agree on this importance. In fact, New Calvinist R.C. Sproul noted that the doctrine of atonement, and I quote, is chiefly concerned about the original purpose, plan, or design of God in sending Christ into the world to die on the cross, end quote. Now, elder statesman of New Calvinism, John Piper, emphasizes the far-reaching aspect of this doctrine when he indicates that upon it rests the death of Christ and through it the vindication of, and I quote, the righteousness of God in justifying the ungodly by faith, end quote. Now, after stating these truths, it surprised me how quickly these Calvinist spokesmen turned away from the passages of Scripture that clearly define and illustrate atonement's purpose and application. I found that it seemed far more important to them that the L of limited atonement be presented in the light of Calvin's own ideas and definitions for total human depravity and unconditional election than they did the light of God's Word. Now, if you haven't viewed my previous two video sessions on the tumbling tea and you of tulip, I urge you to view them right now so that you can understand the interdependence of the points. For you see, no single point of Calvin's tulip stands alone. They depend upon each other. To disregard or eliminate one point is impossible for the Calvinist because of the reasoning linking them all together. Now, noted theologian and Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff defined the Reformed position of limited or sometimes called particular atonement when he stated, and I quote now, Christ died for the purpose of actually and certainly saving the elect and, and the elect only, unquote. 
This is equivalent to saying that Christ died for the purpose of saving only those to whom he actually applies the benefit of his redemptive work. Unquote. John Piper defines atonement as, and I quote, the work of God in Christ by his obedience and death, by which he canceled the debt of our sin, appeased his holy wrath against us, and won for us the benefits of salvation, end quote. He then adds, though, that the atonement purchases, I quote, the promises of the new covenant for irresistible grace, that's the eye of tulip, and therefore limits the full blessings of the atonement to those God irresistibly brings to faith, end quote. Now, he defines those that God irresistibly brings to faith as, and I quote, definite individuals who are effectively saved by it, end quote. In other words, by the way, Calvin's elect. Initially, I conclude that the difference between Calvinists and me was in identifying the recipients of the atonement, those to whom it was made available. The Calvinists limit atonement's availability to exclusive individuals who God pre-selected, the elect, and it's not available to those whom he didn't pre-select, <laughs> the non-elect, if you will. I, however, believed it was available to all people. After extensive reading, I began to see that the majority of the definitions for atonement are based on the presupposition of election. They were not at ri arrived at through sound biblical exegesis. You see, most definitions supported the Calvinistic view of election for salvation and failed to take into account the many scriptural passages and verses about atonement that explain and illustrate the four elements of atonement. Four elements to atonement. When I was doing research for my book, An Appointment with God, The Feast of the Lord, I found that God illustrated and explained atonement in great detail when he gave instructions for the Day of Atonement to Moses in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, most commentators that I checked have not taken these instructions and teaching into account in formulating their definitions for atonement. Now, even many dispensational teachers have failed to do this and hold to some variation of limited atonement as a consequence. This neglect, if you will, might be understood if atonement were only briefly mentioned in the Old Testament in relation only to the nation of Israel. But in fact, it is mentioned more often in the Old Testament than it is in the New. Out of the 70 times the English word now, atonement, appears in the Bible, 69 are found in the Old Testament. Despite this fact, most systematic theology books ignored the Old Testament Hebrew word for atonement. Now that word is kafar. Kafar. Remember, it occurs 69 times in the Old Testament. Therefore, before we can adequately define atonement and the extent of its application, we must consider the Old Testament's teaching on it. When we do this, 
we discover that the word atonement, English word, occurs 64 times in the first five books of the Old Testament and are all connected to the Day of Atonement. Now, of those occurrences, 61% of them are in, you guessed it, the book of Leviticus. This makes Leviticus the key book on atonement. And yet again, most systematic theologies barely even mention it. If a study of the Old Testament passages reveals disagreement with what Calvin believed and derived primarily from the New Testament, then we have a problem with his definition. Or, either God intends for atonement to have two different definitions, one in the Old and one in the New, two different applications, one for Israel, one for the Church, or the Calvinistic definition is inadequate. I believe that God is consistent throughout Scripture. Constant, consequently, we must begin with a study of the Old Testament teaching on atonement and then correlate it with the New Testament teaching in order to define it accurately. Let us now do what all good students of the Bible should always do. Let's look at what the Old Testament teaches us about atonement. What can we learn from the Old Testament use of atonement? The major teaching on atonement is actually found in Leviticus chapter 16. Now this is where Israel is given instructions on how to observe the Day of Atonement. Significantly, the first verse of chapter 16 refers us back to Leviticus 10. You see that? Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Hey, you better remember what happened back in Leviticus 10. For it tells us, The Lord spake unto Moses after the death, death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. So let us stop briefly and review this event that is referred to here in chapter 16 before we look deeper into the instructions of chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. You see, this account concerning Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests of the Lord, and, were, and part of their duties was to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, we have to see this background. So if you will, turn in your Bible to chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Chapter 10, Leviticus, verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, put fire therein, put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not and there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near me or nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now that word glorified there could mean the idea of treated with proper honor, obeying what the Lord has taught, clearly 
instructions given to these two sons. Now, we don't know exactly what the strange fire was, but we do know that it was not acceptable to the Lord. You see, in chapter 1 of Leviticus, the first law is given about burnt offerings, apparently the same things they were doing. In chapter 8, we see that Aaron's sons were consecrated to the Lord's service. They were in his service. They weren't average Joes who just walked in and said, well, we'll offer a sacrifice. No, they were consecrated to the Lord's service. But here in chapter 10, we find them totally rejecting God's instructions and directions on how they were to offer the burnt offering. As a consequence, God killed them, and he commanded further that Aaron and his remaining sons were not to mourn Abihu and Nadab. That's in verse 6. You see, God had rejected them as his servants. We read, And Moses said unto Aaron and unto Eleazar and unto Ithamar, his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. Again, that's verse 6. You see, they weren't to mourn the death of these two because they had disobeyed and brought the wrath of God upon them. Now, another aspect of Nadab and Abihu's sin of disobedience was that it tainted or polluted the altar of the tabernacle. In my upcoming series on the feast called An Appointment with God, we're going to discuss this in much greater detail. But for now, the key point to remember is that God's teaching on atonement started with a reminder of this sinful act by two of God's servants. Now, with this in mind, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 23. So please turn over to Leviticus 23. Uh, this is a chapter that's going to be studied in depth in our new series. You see, in Leviticus 23, God gives an overview of the atonement feast, including all seven feasts, that includes an offering by fire. So now if you'll turn to verse 27, we'll be reading verse 27 through 32. Leviticus 23, verse 27. Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall flick your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. You, it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest. Now that literally is a Sabbath of Sabbath. And you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even, from even unto even, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. 
a very strong passage as we'll see when we study it in our Feast of the Lord video. What we need to notice, several things though, from these instructions. This is a day that focuses on, according to verse 27, an offering by fire. It is day of holy convocation. That's a holy gathering of the entire nation of Israel. Whatsoever that does not observe it, observes it carelessly, or works on this day, they're going to be cut off from the congregation. And these rules apply to all Israel's generation's notice forever. Finally, it's a Sabbath arrest, or literally a Sabbath Sabbath. Now, this is a unique term used very sparingly in the Bible and always signifies an end or a completion of something. Now, let's go back, having read these instructions, to Leviticus 16, where God really expands the instructions about the observance of the feast. So in 23, he says, here's the feast, 16, now here's how you observe it. Now, usually, at teaching this, in teaching this about the Feast of Atonements, when I have a classroom of students right here, I ask my students to look for a common theme, a thread, if you will, running through Leviticus 16, particularly in verses 16 through 34. Now, obviously, for time's sake, I'm going to show you the conclusion that they always arrive at after carefully reading that passage. Now, if you'd like, you could stop this video, read Leviticus 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. Look for a common repeated phrase or word and see if it seems to be a running theme through those verses. Then come on back and we'll continue and I'll tell you the answer. But for those of you who want to just go right on, and for time's sake, I'm going to show you the conclusion that, interestingly, is always arrived at by my students who do this study. I'm going to highlight it by just noting a few verses. So if you'll turn to Leviticus 16, I think you'll get the ideas pretty quick here. We're going to look at verse 16, as I suggested. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions and all their sins. Shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness? In verse 19, after what they're to do, it says, And cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Verse 20, when he made an end of reconciling, the word is literally atoning, the holy place. Uh, verse 24, he shall wash his flesh with water. 26, and he, he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water. Let's look at verse 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that ye may be. In other words, that you'll be clean from all your sins. Do you get that? How often does it talk about washing, about cleansing, clean? They're constantly repeated in this passage and always speaking of the need of a spiritual cleansing and in some cases a physical cleansing as well. We also learn from these verses that cleansing could only be obtained by the sacrificial blood. 
You see, cleansing removes the barrier of sin that separates the nation of Israel and her people from God and enables them to come literally before the Lord to serve, to worship, and to represent him before the entire world. Now in verse 34, this atonement, it says, is for the children of Israel for all their sins. In verse 14, we see the application of the blood to the mercy seat. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Now, this is interesting. This brings up a question. A question that I wait for my students to ask, and they always do. How do you explain verse 33? How do we explain this verse? And he shall make an atonement of the holy sanctuary. He shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. Now, certainly we can understand making atonement for priests and for the people of the congregation. But can the holy sanctuary, the tabernacle, the altar sin? No, they're inanimate. Yet it clearly says that they are also to be atoned. How can this be? Now, if we were Calvinists, we'd have to then conclude, to be consistent now, that these inanimate objects are elect to salvation. No, that definition doesn't fit, does it here? These are inanimate objects. Well, the answer is suggested in chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus. If you were to sit down and read that, and I urge you to do that, you would once again find the terms clean and unclean occurring frequently in those chapters. You see, God is illustrating the effect of a sinful or unclean person has on other people and on other objects that participate or are used in the service of God. God is demonstrating chapters 11 of Leviticus right up until basically 23, that uncleanness, spiritual uncleanness or tainting can be passed on to other people and can make objects unclean and unqualified to be used by God in his service. When this happens, the uncleanness becomes a barrier between God and them. For God is holy now without any pollution, taint, or sin. In the unclean state, they, people, cannot be used of God, nor can they serve him. Clearly, verse 33 applies atonement to inanimate objects also, because they need to be spiritually cleaned to be able to be used in worship by God. I believe this function demonstrates that the primary purpose of atonement is spiritual cleansing to remove the barrier 
that hinders service to God. Get that? The primary purpose of atonement is spiritual cleansing to remove barriers that hinder service to God and not, now notice I'm carefully saying this, solely redemption from personal sin. Uh, these objects didn't have personal sin. Now, if we take a summary of atonement based on Leviticus 10 through chapter 23, we see that atonement applies to the entire congregation of the nation of Israel. Individual sins contribute to Israel's collective sins, necessitating spiritual cleansing for the nation to stand in a right relationship before the Lord, and here's what's important, to serve Him. The presence of sin taints or pollutes both individuals and objects in such a way as to render them spiritually unclean and unfit for God's service. You see, sin creates a barrier between a holy God and Israel that must be removed before God can bless and use the nation in his service. Only sacrificial blood can remove this barrier and can satisfy God's holy and his just nature by making the object or person that is unclean, clean. Any who do not willingly participate of the atonement and its cleansing are to be cut off from the congregation. Two other factors regarding the nation of Israel should be considered as we determine the definition and application of atonement and then compare it to Calvin's view. According to Isaiah 44 verses 1 through 3, also you can find it in 54 verse 4, the entire nation of Israel was pre-chosen or elect by God to serve him. For you see, the twelve tribes of Israel were physically within the loins of Jacob when God declared this, and he said, Yet now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jezurum, that's a term for Israel, whom I have chosen. The word is actually elect. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and flood upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. For Jacob, my servant's sake, Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. You may recall the discussion on the meaning of election from our session on the tumbling you of Tulip. We looked at three distinct groups that God had designated as elect. The elect angels, the elect nation of Israel, beginning with Jacob, all those that are his offspring, and the elect bride of Christ, the church. According to the Bible now, God chose or elected these three groups to serve him in three unique ways. The angels were to serve him uniquely 
Israel is to serve him uniquely, and the church is to serve him uniquely. We concluded that election is not about salvation at all, but about designating a group to serve its God. The elect angels are righteous by creation. They're qualified to serve God because those elect angels are the ones that chose not to participate in Satan's rebellion. So they've always been righteous. You see, they serve God in a variety of ways. But salvation does not involve angels. However, angels are interested in observers. They're interested observers of the elect church and its mission to spread the gospel of salvation. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, they desire to look into it, it being salvation. They can't be saved. They're already righteous. Now, as God's elect nation... Israel was called to serve God. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 55, we read, For unto the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, as God's elect nation, Israel serves God in a variety of ways. She represents God to the world. She recorded and preserved his word. She demonstrates God's purpose or response, if you will, excuse me, to obedience and to disobedience. She definitely displays his loving kindness, his patience throughout history. And she gave us the Savior. Clearly, all Jewish people who came out of Egypt now They weren't righteous, yet the entire nation of Israel, including the unrighteous Israelis that came out of Egypt, God calls his elect. Furthermore, throughout Israel's history, she has often turned away from God many times, time and time again. Now, despite this, never forget this, God promises never to forsake his chosen elect nation of Israel. He says that in Leviticus 26.44. In that same chapter, he also foretells of a final restoration to Israel. In chapters 36 through 48 of Ezekiel, tells us about that future restoration that is still coming for Israel and has not yet occurred. Not surprisingly, we find that Israel at that time will be cleansed of her national sins. Just prior to being restored to a right relationship with God and enter into the millennium. In Ezekiel chapter 36, you might want to turn to there. Uh, We have done a series on 38 and we kind of explained some of this there more fully. But if you'll go to Ezekiel, let me get to Ezekiel here. Verse 29. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Sound familiar? I will save you all from your uncleanness. I will call for the corn, will increase it, and lay no famine upon you. Then look at verse 33, what he says. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from 
all your iniquities. I will cause you to dwell in the cities and the waste shall be builded. Notice how the words, in the day that I shall have cleansed you. Does that sound familiar to the instructions given in Leviticus on on atonement? Furthermore, this word, in the day. The future day God is referring to will occur at the end of the tribulation. When Israel calls out to God for the Messiah to deliver them. We then read, the nation will be cleansed and restored to a right relationship with God so she can serve him throughout the millennium. Now, look at verse 25. Let's go back to 24. For I will take you from among the heathen, they're spread out today all over the world, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. So he's excluded the Babylonian captivity here, certainly, because he says, from all countries. Now notice verse 25. Then, after I've gathered you back out of all the countries of the world, will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and what? You shall be clean. What shall they be clean from? All your filthiness from all your idols will I cleanse you. Wow. This cleansing enables God to give the people of Israel a new heart and a new spirit. We read that in 26. A new heart will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. You shall keep my judgments and do them. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, this is the famous new covenant promise to Israel. But you see, we have a sequential summary in this passage of Israel's future cleansing, then a reconciliation, a new heart given to them, and a restoration, not only spiritually, but in the land where they'll be his servants. Notice importantly here, God will initiate it by calling the nation back to the land. He then will cleanse Israel and give the people a new heart and a new spirit. The nation and people will then walk with her God and serve him. Now, according to Ezekiel 39 and verse 29, uh, that's right at the end of Gog Magog. You may want to watch our video on that, and that will be explained. God says he is no longer going to hide his face from them. God will have turned back to them. They will have turned to him. Ezekiel also notes that the restoration returns the inanimate land to the spiritually clean state Notice in 36 verse 35. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like what? The Garden of Eden. The waste and desolate ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited again. In my study on the feast, I'll explain that this day that Ezekiel is referring to will actually occur on a future Day of Atonement. All right, we looked at the elect angels, the elect nation of Israel. Let's check the church out just briefly. 
The elect church also has been chosen to serve God in a variety of ways. She, or we are part of it, if you know the Lord is your Savior, represents God to the world, and we are to proclaim his word and the gospel of salvation to all people. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6, presents Christ as the living stone chosen or elect of God. You see, Christ was elect of God. He's the chief cornerstone of a spiritual house. That house is the church. Ephesians 1, verse 4, informs us that God has chosen or elected us as a unit called the church to be in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Just as God elected Jacob and the nation to serve him, God also elected Christ and the church to serve him. Israel came from Jacob's loins through physical birth as natural children and were part of the elect group, while the church comes from Christ through spiritual birth as adopted children. To link election with salvation would be inconsistent with these three examples that we've just reviewed. And remember, they are the only examples of election in the Bible. What is consistent with all three elect groups is that they were chosen to serve God and his purposes. Yes, God is consistent, and his word should be interpreted in a consistent manner. Let us now turn to the New Testament and consider the only verse where the English word atonement appears. That's in Romans chapter 5, and we'll read verse 11. You see, Paul wrote to the believers in Rome to tell them that their belief in the acceptance and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior meant that they had received atonement. So if you will, turn to Romans chapter 5. Reading Romans chapter 5, verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Receive the atonement. That's the only use of that word in the English Bible. Now, it's important to note that the English word atonement has its origins from the Anglo-Saxon, and therefore it's defined as, in the Anglo-Saxon, the process of bringing two parties that are estranged into a unity. Inherent in this idea is the restoration of harmony between two parties once estranged. It appears that atonement was a well-selected English word that agree with what we have just observed about the Old Testament Hebrew word for atonement and certainly the example set by Israel. God was estranged from Israel. God turns back to Israel. Israel turns to them and they're brought back to a unity. Now let us look at the original Greek word that was used in the earliest manuscripts. The Greek word for atonement, katalagain, with its root katalaso, also indicates, interesting, doesn't it, reconciliation of two parties that were estranged and results in a total restoration to a former state of harmony. Let me read that definition again. 
a reconciliation of two parties resulting in a restoration to a former state of harmony. While this word is translated only once as atonement in the New Testament, it does occur three other places in the Greek New Testament. Of the three times, the English translators translated twice as reconciliation and once as reconciling. Thus, we conclude from the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, and even the Anglo-Saxon word, atonement is a process that brings about reconciliation between two estranged parties. The goal is restore them to their original unity and harmony with God and then qualify them for that original purpose, which was service. According to the Bible, though, atonement requires blood to remove the barrier of sin that offends the holiness of God. You see, this process may be pictured in this way. Atonement process. You start with an original unity, an estrangement occurs, then reconciliation is needed and restored, and unity and harmony have come back as originally planned by God. Let us now look at a biblical example of the atonement process so that we can better understand how atonement works. The first step in the process is exemplified by the original unity and harmony that existed between God and his creation back in the Garden of Eden, way back before Adam sinned. According to Genesis 1.28, we saw that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In this very good original state, God talked with Adam face to face. They were in perfect harmony together. The next step in the atonement process was the estrangement between God and Adam. It was caused when Adam's single act of sin created a barrier between God who is holy and pure and man who is now sinful by nature and is now unclean. This estrangement affected not only Adam, but all humanity as well. For all mankind was in Adam, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Just as, by the way, all Israel was in Jacob. Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. So if you're still back in Romans chapter 5, let's look at verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Death, spiritual death, again we well explain this, in our previous two videos, is separation from God. It is the consequence of Adam's sin. Now, yes, physical death also came upon Adam, but the immediate effect of the sin was spiritual death. According to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, and it contrasts it there to eternal life. So we're talking spiritual death here. 
According to Isaiah 59, 2, we read, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. You see that? A barrier was set up. Now, certainly a just and holy God, he can't just overlook humanity's sin. If he's truly just and he's truly holy, he can't have anything to do with humanity because of the sin. According to theologian Robert Leitner, and I quote, This sinful condition brought forth the wrath of God. It was not just the wrath against the sin of the elect, which made necessary Christ's death, but rather his wrath against every member of Adam's race, unquote. In this dire situation, God, in mercy, love, and grace, provided a way to appease his own wrath through his son's sacrificial blood and death upon the cross. The cleansing of atonement enabled reconciliation to take place, for it pacified God's anger, satisfied his justice, and enabled him to turn again toward humanity and now to offer salvation. From the garden to the cross, God repeatedly demonstrated that the blood of an animal sacrifice was unable to propitiate, which means to satisfy his just nature. At best, it could only delay it. This is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. So turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance being made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls of goats should take away sins. He then goes on to say that the sacrifice of one man, the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, was sufficient. In verse 12, But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. This man... One sacrifice for sins forever. What was the extent of the propitiating atonement provided by the eternal Son of God? According to John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Just as God initiated the Day of Atonement, a means of reconciling the whole nation of Israel to himself, God initiated reconciliation with all humanity when Christ became the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Just as individual Jewish people could partake of the nation's atonement by willingly participating in the requirements for the Day of Atonement, so too the individual may partake of Christ's atonement by receiving Jesus Christ through faith alone.
Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, if any man, notice he doesn't say, uh, if only the elect or just the chosen few. He says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Verse 18 tells us, all things are of God who hath reconciled us by Jesus Christ. In case you are thinking, aha, it says to us, the saved, and therefore only Calvin's elect, uh, Paul's already thought of this. Paul negates that thought by immediately adding in verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. You see that? So he defines it not just to us who are now saved in the church, part of that group that's elect. No, 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 no. The reconciling the world unto himself. This is a crucial verse. God was in Christ reconciling the world. The atonement is truly unlimited and for the whole world. Finally, in verse 20, Paul informs believers that they are ambassadors or servants of Christ to the world who have been given this message of reconciliation. Now then, now what? After we've been reconciled to God and we are his, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, implore you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. God the Father initiated the reconciliation aspect of atonement process when, according to 1 John 4.14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the, you guessed it, world. We also have the testimony of John the Baptist who proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1.29 you see, the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ reconciled God to the world, his entire creation, including humanity. This atoning act removed the obstacle, the barrier between God and mankind, and made it possible for him to turn toward the world and offer salvation, Romans 10:13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Salvation is offered to whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord. Only by doing this could a just, righteous, and holy God offer salvation to every sinner in the world who has willingly opposed and rejected him, yet he offers it to them. Thus, in the words of Robert Leitner, and I quote, the price paid to bring divine satisfaction must be an all-inclusive and extensive as the wrath of God was and the sin of man, which made the satisfaction necessary in the first place. You see that? Since sin covered the whole world and all mankind, so too would the payment of sin or the satisfaction of God's wrath and holiness and justice by Jesus Christ would be for all the world, all humanity. Atonement must be unlimited to agree with the purpose of atonement and the scriptures. We must now carefully define the biblical definition of atonement based upon our study of the Old and New Testament. 
At the beginning of this session, you may recall that I quoted theologian Louis Burkhoff, who said, and I quote, that Christ died for the purpose of actually and certainly saving the elect and the elect only. He went on to say, the atonement not only made salvation possible for the sinner, but actually secured it. Therefore, atonement secured the work of redemption to those for whom it was intended and thus rendered their complete salvation certain. End quote. You see, basically the Calvinist equates salvation with atonement. But in doing this, they fail to distinguish between the many accomplishments that Christ's death achieved. Consequently, they are forced to make atonement applicable only to the elect in order to avoid some type of universalism. That is, the teaching that all mankind is saved. This is why Calvinists redefined the word world, especially where so many verses refer to Christ uh, paying for the sin of the world, and they make it the world of the elect. However, in light of all we have considered and observed about atonement, a biblical definition that avoids universalism is possible. It defines atonement and redemption separately and makes atonement, therefore, unlimited. Now, if atonement is not the same as salvation, what is it? Well, here's a biblicist definition of atonement. Atonement is a process initiated by God the Father with the purpose of reconciling and restoring the world, creation and humanity, to the original Eden-like state of unity and harmony with him. Let me repeat that. Atonement is a process initiated by God the Father with the purpose of reconciling and restoring the world, that's creation and humanity, to the original Eden-like state of unity and harmony with him. Now, God must achieve this goal by removing that barrier of humanity's sin without violating his holy, just, and righteous nature. He did this. There are three aspects to atonement in which he accomplished all of this. The first aspect of atonement, the sacrificial death and blood of God the Son satisfied, that's that word propitiated, God the Father's holy, just, and righteous nature and reconciled the world, all creation, including mankind, with God the Father. In other words, it satisfied the aspect of God's nature of holiness, justness, and righteousness. They were forever satisfied now by the blood of Christ. Because Christ accomplished that, the act removed the barrier of sin and satisfied God's wrath and never violated God's holiness, righteousness, and justness. The second aspect of atonement, God the Father now can turn to humanity and offer restoration, reconciliation as a gift to whoever freely chooses to receive it and be reconciled to him. 
You see that? Because God is now reconciled to humanity, he can offer restoration to them and reconciliation to the individual, what we call salvation, as a gift. It's, he's now free to offer this gift and allow people to choose to be reconciled. But individual acceptance brings spiritual cleansing when they make that choice. Just as in Israel, atonement was offered to all, but they had to make a choice to come under it. And the result is a restored relationship with God that establishes unity and harmony. Remember the illustration of Israel and Ezekiel? They were first brought back by God. God initiated it all. Once they responded, then God brought forth the cleansing and the, the restoration to the Garden of Eden aspect. Note, those choosing not to receive it are not restored and reconciled to God. They will spend eternity separated from him in hell. That's called spiritual death for eternity, the second death. The third aspect of atonement. This unity with God enables individuals and nations of the world to serve and glorify God as he originally planned. And it will continue throughout eternity in the new heaven and earth. Third aspect of atonement again. It's a unity with God that enables individuals and nations of the world to serve and glorify God as he originally intended and planned in the original creation. And that will continue now into the new heavens and new earth. Significant aspect is this is taking back or restoring that unity. Now, instead of focusing on the elect of Calvinism or on redemption only, this definition of atonement focuses on God the Father's plan to restore creation to its original intended harmony and unity. To limit salvation's availability to pre-chosen individuals only detracts from the multifaceted nature of Christ's redemptive work. For example, Christ's act brings redemption, brings justification, sanctification, and eventual glorification, to mention just some of the aspects. Added to this is atonement, for atonement brings full reconciliation. Atonement allows God to offer that salvation to mankind. Once he can offer salvation and it's accepted, they are then redeemed. Atonement is not salvation. Atonement enables God the Father to offer the gift of salvation. So once again, another domino of tulip tumbles and in turn causes the eye of irresistible grace to begin to tumble. Join us again in our next class when we will study the tumbling eye of Calvin's tulip. Until then, may our Lord bless you mightily, and we will see you either here or in the air.